Hi there, and welcome into episode number four of the BTN podcast. I'm Alex Rue of BTN.com, and I'm very glad to say that we're kind of settling into a groove here as this podcast continues to get off the ground. As I mentioned last week, the show now has its own dedicated iTunes channel. It's on Podbean. It's on Google Play for all you Android users out there like myself. And it also lives on SoundCloud. So please keep listening, keep subscribing, keep rating. I really do appreciate it, guys. And just bear with me here as I ramble on a little bit before we get into our next guest. Now that we're past Memorial Day, we're getting into summertime. And I assume everyone, all the Big Ten fans out there, are missing football and or basketball season. But still, it's June, and this June weather means that it's been just fantastic outside lately. And for those of you out there who don't know, we're based in Chicago here at Big Ten Network. And Chicago can be a polarizing city and can be described a lot of ways, but one description you won't find many arguments for is that it's a fantastic summer city. The water, the architecture, food, just everything's better in summertime shy, as Kanye West once attested to. You see a lot of smiles, a lot of people in good spirits, and that definitely applies to everyone here at the BTN studio. Because without college sports going on in the summer, uh, things really slow down around here at the office, which, uh, when it comes to this podcast, means it really was the perfect time of year to launch this thing and get it off the ground, in my opinion. If you're trying to launch something like this at the height of football or basketball season, it might get buried, but we were able to do it late spring, early summer here, and I'm really happy with what we've been able to accomplish so far and the support I've gotten both internally and from from listeners out there. So I'm going to continue to try and bring in high-quality guests like we have so far and try my best to have entertaining discussions with them. And we'll keep trying to get get these out on a weekly basis uh, or semi-regularly. So finally, our guest for episode four is absolutely both high-quality and entertaining. And I'll be surprised if I laugh more in any future podcast than I did during this segment. The guest is Stephen Bardo. He's the current Big Ten Network basketball analyst. And of course, a former member of the Flying Lion-Eye basketball team in the late 80s and early 90s. Stephen had some great stories to tell about his lengthy professional career overseas, which we got into during my call with him last week. So let's wrap up this long-winded intro and let's get into the BTN podcast interview with Stephen Bardo. Very happy to be joined by Stephen Bardo on the BTN podcast. He's one of my coworkers at Big Ten Network as a basketball analyst for us here. He was also a four-year player at Illinois back in the Flying Illini days before playing over 10 years of professional basketball, both home and abroad. Thanks for joining me, Stephen. Hey, thanks a lot for having me, Alex. Appreciate it. Yeah, of course. And uh, Stephen, we, we talked a lot about your playing days at Illinois during some of the, the Facebook Lives we've done together in the past. And I know a lot of Illini and College Hoops fans out there are at least somewhat familiar with that history of your basketball career. So for this particular podcast, I wanted to get into your professional career because you had a very solid pro career that spanned uh, a lot of the globe. And I'm always fascinated by some of those stories that come out about people playing overseas. As a matter of fact, you told me last time I saw you that you could probably write 10 books about your experiences playing pro basketball. So we're going to try and hear some of those stories here in the next half hour or so. Uh, you got to tell me, were, were the pros were that wild, Stephen? Well, it, it's, you know, when you go to different countries, there are different um, social norms and cultural norms. And so, you know, naturally I'm going to come from the United States and come to another country with my own norms and, you know, just doing what I do. And so it, 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 it can be wild. It, it can be different. 
it just depends on where you go. Um, I try not to be the ugly American. I tried to have my fedoras guides where, I, you know, I was trying to say the language and, and speak the language, and that, that seemed to help. So it was it, – it's quite an experience. I think I grew up overseas, and I wouldn't change it for anything in the world. Yeah, so let's, uh, let's start from the beginning, from when you came out of Illinois. You, you graduated as a pretty decorated four-year player from there and ended up getting drafted in 1990. What happened uh, after you got drafted, and how did you end up with the teams you played on in the first couple of years of your career? Well, I got drafted and uh, made the veterans camp and was cut in veterans camp because uh, Bob White thought it was wise to bring in Sidney Moncrief out of retirement. Um, and so he was saying that that was the spot that I was going for. And so it was a little bit of a shock because I had never really been turned down from anything at that point in my life, uh, basketball-related. I'd always been elite, always competed at the highest level, and had really never been rejected. So that was a, uh, a painful experience because I remember we were um, in a preseason game at the Dallas Mavericks, and I had about seven or eight family members in attendance and uh i didn't play that much but when we came when i came out my my family could tell something was wrong and just before i come out bob weiss told me he informed me that they were going to release me and that they were going to bring Sidney micrief out of retirement so you know it, it was a shock it was um you know a little bit of sadness uh and then you know that's when the growing up started and so i went from there to the uh quad city in the Continental Basketball Association, which is now the D League. Right. Uh, so I went to the minor leagues and, you know, had a good experience there. But that, that was kind of my first entry into professional basketball. Yeah, so that was the Atlanta Hawks, correct, that you were originally drafted by? Yes, that's correct. All right, so what was that adjustment like going from, you think you're going to be in, in the NBA, like you said, you were elite, you had started at Illinois for four years, and all of a sudden you're, you're riding the bus in the CBA? You know, it, it, again, um, Alex, looking back on it, man, it's one of the best things that ever happened to me because um, I learned how to work. And I learned, and I was never one to be given a lot of stuff. My parents, just they're not of that philosophy. They're pretty uh, stern uh, disciplinarians. I mean, they, you know, we, we enjoyed ourselves, but, you know, we, we knew where the boundaries were. And so, you know, going to the CBA, um, you know, you kind of dropped in a melting pot of, veterans who have been in some have been in and out of the nba some have been overseas and it's kind of a hodgepodge and crazy mix and so you know i was trying to find myself there and i really did you know in terms of getting a work ethic uh getting my routine down uh trying to learn how to take care of my body trying to have fun as well you know a lot of downtime no no college courses or anything like that so it it was a really interesting first year uh to kind of juggle everything and, um, you know, figure things out on and off the court. But I, I really enjoyed my time with the Quad City Thunders. I, I really learned how to play the game at the pro level and, uh, you know, really enjoyed my teammates and that experience. Yeah, you mentioned the D-League didn't exist back then. So was the CBA kind of the main option for guys that, like yourself, that were maybe uh, cut from NBA teams? Yeah, you know, if you couldn't jump overseas really quickly. And I, I really wasn't uh, open to that uh, right out of college because I was so – had my heart set on uh, going to the NBA. And so, um, you know, the CBA was a wonderful league. In my opinion, it was the second-best league in the world at that time because you have to remember um, there there wasn't 
I don't think Vancouver and there were two new franchises, which is now Memphis, but it was it was the Grizzlies and it was the uh, wow, it's, it's escaping me now. But there were uh, those franchises weren't there when I first got into uh, professional basketball, and so you know there were limited opportunities, and so guys who didn't want to go overseas, they came to the CBA because you could still make a decent buck in the CBA back then, and so. It was a crazy competitive league. I mean, you would see guys from Norfolk State, South Dakota State, uh, just really obscure uh, uh, colleges that could really play. These guys could flat out play, and they'd kick your tail every night if you weren't ready. So uh, it, was, it was a wonderful experience. And, again, um, you know, the, the CBA uh, probably has – they could write an encyclopedia about the CBA. It was a – Fantastic league. It developed a lot of coaches, officials, players, uh, and it had definitely some characters in it. Who are some names that basketball fans of that era might recognize, coaches or players? Um, let me think. Uh, Flip Saunders, God rest his soul. Um, he had a very uh, successful stint in lacrosse, uh, the lacrosse Catbirds in Wisconsin. I believe they won a championship or two under Flip, and so he went on to coach in the with the Dallas, uh, Detroit Pistons and Minnesota Timberwolves. Uh, Phil Jackson was the coach in Albany when I first came in. Uh, and he had Mario Ellie, who ended up having a, a very successful career. Uh, Vincent Askew played uh, about seven or eight years in the NBA. He was on that team. Uh, Milt Wagner um, of Louisville fame uh, was a teammate of mine at Quad City. Uh, let me think. Bunch of other guys that you know. Elson Turner was a player assistant coach, and Elson had a long NBA career. He's an assistant with the Memphis Grizzlies, I believe. Now, Mike Davis, who was head coach at Indiana, took them to the national championship game. He was my teammate and kind of an assistant coach, player coach type thing in the CBA. So there was a, a, a ton of talent, a ton of guys that that came through that league and really honed and developed their skills, whether they were coaching playing, refereeing, even people in the front office got opportunities to, you know, elevate from the CBA into the NBA. So it was, it was a great league. Sure. And before you ended up playing overseas, you did have a couple more shots with NBA teams. How did those chances play out, and did you find yourself on the floor? You know, I got a chance to um, – I made the – what was it? I made the opening day – oh, I was going to make the opening day roster with San Antonio. It was crazy because – uh, this is my second year, and I go to camp with the Spurs. I make the a veterans team, veterans camp, and September 25th, my uh, first child was born. And so I'll never forget it. I'm in San Antonio, and they called, uh, I think some family member of mine called the office and said that uh, my uh, girlfriend, who ended up being my wife, my girlfriend was going into labor. And so Willie Anderson threw me the keys to his Porsche, uh, Larry Brown, who was the head coach at the time, comes and gives me a, a huge hug, and he says, listen, uh, basketball side is the most important thing in life. Your, your, your child, your son coming into this world is going to be more to you than anything that you'll ever do on the court. So go enjoy yourself and congratulations. And after I got the hug, I jumped in the Porsche and ran, went 90 miles an hour to the San Antonio airport. They had a flight for me back to Atlanta. Um, I ran in, and I was an hour late, and I looked in the incubator, and I could tell who mine was because 
he was the biggest one in there, <laughs> longest and biggest child in there. And I'm thinking that uh, he's smiling and older. It, it looked like somebody's grandmother walked by and said, no, baby, that's gas. So <laughs> he, he just let out gas. So that, that was one of the more memorable um, experiences with uh, San Antonio. So I didn't – I got um, – cut in the uh, veterans camp, went back to the CBA, but then got picked up for a couple of 10 days uh, later that year. And so I, I got my feet wet in the NBA the following year, went to the Dallas Mavericks, made the opening day roster, stayed until the guaranteed date, which is uh, January 10th. I stayed January 9th. They called me in the office and said, you know, we're going to let you go. Uh, Detroit was very similar with Doug Collins was the head coach. In 95-96, I made the opening day roster, got to June 9th, and they decided to go a different direction. So it was twice where, you know, for unrestricted uh, free agent type like myself, guaranteed money was huge then. And so, to you know, to kind of get right up to the edge of when your, your contracts become guaranteed and get let go twice, you know, showed me that uh, the nature of the business is cutthroat. And, you know, it, it's not that I wasn't – an NBA quality player it was just that certain coaches are looking for certain things, and it's 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 a weird thing. So that's kind of how those uh, my um, time my co- I call them coffee breaks with the <laughs> NBA occurred with Dallas, Detroit, and San Antonio. Yeah. So when did overseas ball start to become more of an appealing option in your mind, and was that because of the money, or were you just getting tired of bouncing around here, or, or when did that become sort of an option that sounded good to you? Well, I got an opportunity to kind of bounce overseas a little bit. I, I went to Livalois, France, which is, which is a suburb of Paris. Played with Livalois uh, in the spring, ooh, 92. Then I got a chance to, um, I went on an overseas tour. Uh, it was the first Gulf War, and uh, I was with a, 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 tour, a, a group that toured with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and we went and played for the troops, and then once we got to Saudi Arabia, there was some disagreement, so the troops weren't allowed to come watch us play, and so we played in front of a bunch of Saudi dignitaries <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, suits uh, that were over there from the United States. And uh, So I had a great experience there. Um, I, I, I played in Caracas, Venezuela one summer. Um, where else did I go? And then I went to Germany. Uh, for a period of time there and had kind of a, a midnight escape because they were trying to fool with my money, uh, my contract. They were trying to run the money through a piece of real estate because the taxes in Germany at that time were at 50 to 60%. Yeah. And uh, I figured, Alex, I would get a uh, – I asked the team for an advance. I said, you know what, my wife and kid, I, I want to advance them some money back home. I knew it was, it was a fishy situation. So they gave me the ten thousand dollars. I had my wife book a flight uh, from uh, Munich, Germany, to Paris, to Chicago, or Paris to Atlanta, while, where we were living at the time. And by the time the team knew I was gone, I was I was on a flight from Paris to Atlanta <laughs> uh, with ten thousand dollars in my pocket and with my passport in hand back home because they were trying to do some fishy stuff. Uh, you know, Alex, I've been to Italy. Uh, played in Italy for about half a year. Uh, was on. Was, <laughs> we were the second, uh, the second place team playing the first place team. National televised game. I get into it with the Italian national. We uh, roll into the stands fighting each other. Policeman tries to stomp on my head. The the 
American guy from the other team comes in the stands and grabs me because he's about 6'10". I can't remember his name, but he's about 6'10", grabbed me out of Christ and said, you okay? I was like, yeah, and I walked off the court, and I gave the bird to the fans. You don't do that in Italy. And so our, our bus got rocked. They threw ice at our bus. It was nuts. And I, we barely got out of there alive. The team was like, you know what? We don't need you. So I got, I got released from that. So I've, I've had quite a bit of experiences. And I think after the, um, I believe it was the Dallas experience, I started becoming more open uh, right around 93, 94 to trying to get overseas and just try to solidify myself because the money I was making in the NBA – uh, minimum salary at that point, I believe, was 150000 and it was prorated until it was guaranteed. So I was making decent money, but I wanted to uh, be able to try to uh, save and invest for the future while I could still play because I didn't know how long I had. So about 94, 95 is when I started really thinking about going overseas. Yeah, a couple of takeaways from that. Um, I like the story with the playing in front of the Saudis. It kind of reminded me of when mm-hmm. when Dennis Rodman went over to play in front of all the North Koreans, and there were no Americans there. It was just a bunch of you know North Korean military people sitting and watching. And that's that's the first thing that popped in my head, and I think that's hilarious that uh, you flipped the bird to the Italians and got some serious backlash. I didn't realize it was such a negative gesture in that country. Oh, I mean, Alex, it's a pack. It. I think there was probably eight to 10,000 people, really nice arena right on top of you. And I'm, you know, flipping the bird and they are so accustomed to fans throwing coins and things that they have a retractable uh, tunnel. And so as I'm giving the crowd my business, all of a sudden these coins rain down and this guy grabs this retractable uh, tunnel and pulls it out and this other guy shoves me into it because they know I'm going to get killed if, I, if they didn't get me off the court quickly. So that was a lesson in, in the differences in culture that you definitely don't want to do that in Italy because that, that gets them – that takes them zero to 60 pretty quick. <laughs> yeah, and these stories sound kind of similar, just reading about other players you hear going overseas. Stories, like you said, people don't get paid on time. Sometimes they don't get paid at all. Fans are out of control. Fouls are crazy. Uh were referees always on the up and up over there? Because I've heard some stories about referees being, you know, paid off. They got made up some money on the game, something like that. My experience with the referees overseas is just really inconsistent. You know, uh, overseas in, in, in Europe, at least when I was playing, um, Alex, they were you could really just mug people on the perimeter. I mean, you could clutch, grab, hold shorts. Now, if you try, if I try to do it as an American to you know, a native player, whether it was in Spain or Italy or France or something, then they were very uh, quick to call the same thing that they were allowing someone to do to me. They were quick to call it on me. And so uh, you learn quickly as an American that you have an X on your back when you go overseas because people are automatically going to think that you're better uh, because we, we had been dominant up until that time. And, so, you know, as, a, as an American player playing overseas, you, you learn quickly whether you learn from your other American teammates or from just playing that, you know, it, there's a double standard and that, you know, people can be very aggressive towards you and you really have to maintain your composure because uh, the national players understand that, you know, this is an opportunity for me to get under this guy's skin. I can get him out of the game. 
and we'll have a better chance of winning the game. I mean, they would sacrifice themselves for that. I think the kid that I got in the wrestle, wrestling match with in Italy uh, kind of did the same thing. He was a starter, but he wasn't one of the main guys, and he just kept hitting me with elbows. I'm sitting here looking at the ref, and the ref's kind of throwing his hands up. I was like, okay. So the next time he, he threw an elbow, I, I cracked him in the back of his neck with a, with a fist, act like I was going for a rebound. I punched him in the back of his neck, and he came and charged me, and it was on after that. And so, you know, the referees, they, some are smoking between uh, quarters, uh, so they can't get them down to court. Uh, some of them smell like they've been drinking before they come out. Uh, you know, it's just a lot of variances between the different countries. But my experience in Japan, Italy, Spain, Venezuela, uh, France, Germany, uh, it, it, it's all very, very different. Right. And that was an era when the Dream Team was still fresh in everyone's heads. And European basketball was not nearly as developed as it is today with overseas players like Dirk Nowitzki and, and Manu Ginobili, guys like that. Were there ever any countries that maybe were expecting more of Americans or that took it harder on your harder on Americans, like the crowds were, were more harsh on you guys than others? Oh, sure. Yeah, at that time, um, Italy, Spain, France, and Greece, I believe, had the best leagues outside of the United States. And so in those countries, in those big countries, you know, they didn't care if you were sick. They didn't care what happened to your family if something happened. Uh, if you if you put on the jersey and show up, they expect 15 to 20 every night, regardless if you're getting double teamed, if the refs are, you know, screwing you, they don't care. And so uh, there was a lot of pressure when you would go over to perform. And, um, you know, I'm not sure how it is now, but when I was playing – you know, you only played once or twice a week. And so you had a lot of practice time, and that was bad because if you lost a game, you'd be walking around. I'd, I'd walk around Fabriano, Italy, where I was uh, playing for it. It's a, a, a wonderful village of about 40,000 people, kind of right in a mountain range. It's a beautiful area. And the people were some of the most friendly I had met until we lose the game. Yeah, and you, you probably didn't look then, like most of the townspeople there either, so you probably stood out. Oh, no. Oh, I stood out big time. And – you know, they loved uh, my son, Stephen Paul. I believe he was he was just shy of two right then, so he was a cute kid running around. and So they loved they loved me and my wife and my son. And, and boy, we lost that first game, and it just, I mean, it turned big time. People that spoke didn't speak. You know, they're frowning. They're like, oh, what happened in this game? It's like, man, you know, did you miss a spot when you were mopping the floor? Did anybody say anything to you about that? I mean, you know, so it was, uh, it was crazy, man. But, you know, it's. Like I said, I think I grew up overseas, Alex. I really did. Yeah, were there a lot of Americans on your team, or were most of your teammates from from Europe? And did you get along with your teammates very well? You know, I got along with all my teammates because I came with a uh, spirit of reverence and respect. Uh, unfortunately, um, basketball players have been and will be coddled, especially American basketball players. And so when they get into a situation that's overseas that's a little different, and they can't walk down the street and get McDonald's or Burger King or, you know, the comforts of home, they get agitated and they start to get withdrawn. And that's where you hear the ugly American theme is that guys that come over, they want to embrace the culture that they're in. You know, I'm a history buff, always has been, have been. And so I was always excited to go to these different places to kind of get into the, the culture and, and find out what makes them unique, what, what makes them tick. And, 
so the the players, the, the teammates that I had in Italy, I mean Japan, I loved my teammates in Japan, probably more than any other team. Uh, Spain, the guys are good. Uh, they had come off of winning the European Championship, and so I think there was a little bit of malaise with those guys. They, they were kind of fat and happy. They'd been paid well. So it was a little bit more difficult with them. But everybody else, Italy, uh, uh, Germany, uh, even Venezuela, um, they were all good. And so when I was playing, you could only have two foreigners on a team at one time. Now that situation has changed. But back then it was only two foreigners. So if you got on a team with a bad American teammate, man, you were really you might be screwed. So, but I, I was very fortunate that I had good American teammates, and also I really respected my teammates uh, that were, uh, you know, from from that country. Yeah. So you said you told us about some pretty crazy stories that happened on the court over there, especially that uh, that coin story. That was that's pretty terrifying. But give me one story that happened off the court to you, maybe out in the uh, out in the streets or something crazy that happened that took you back over in Europe or or Japan. <laughs> Let me think. Let's see. Was one of PG? Um, I think we can uh, we can go PG thirteen. Even it's called a PG thirteen podcast. PG PG thirteen. Sure. Okay, this, this is hilarious. Uh, so we're in Malaysia. We're with our Japanese team, but we have to go play in this uh, Asian tournament. And it was after the season was over, and we had gotten so spoiled playing in Japan because you get a lot more, you probably get a month or two more off than you do from uh, typical European or Australian or South American jobs. And so um, we, we had to come back. We were in Malaysia. Uh, it was 111 outside. Uh, I got um, salmonella poisoning from something I ate. We go out to a bar. Um, we are, are sitting there, you know, minding our own business. Me and uh, Fred Lewis, my one of my uh, American teammates, and <laughs> there was mistaken identity. There was another foreign guy that had come in, a black guy, and I guess he had done something pretty bad to this young lady. And as Fred and I are just sitting there, I guess the lady thought Fred was this guy. And, she just walks up and, and hits him upside the head with a glass full of beer, and I mean I get hit with a uh, get hit with a beer. He gets hit with the the glass, and Fred is normally a very calm and, and collected guy, but I saw a look in his eyes where he's gonna tear this woman apart. And all I could think about was I gotta get back to my wife and my son. So how are we gonna get out of this? And so I'm holding back Fred. I'm 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 talking him down. Other guys jump into the the mix there's a lot of back and forth going on but somehow we made it out that night i did not know if we would uh because that woman was very upset and we found out that it was mistaken identity she uh, she apologized profusely once she figured out what what was what had happened but that that's one story where uh and there have been several alex where i kind of wondered whether i was going to see uh home and my family again but luckily uh the gift of gab which helps me on television uh, has definitely helped me out in real life. <laughs> definitely. So you bounced around pretty much until the very end of your career. You even came back to the United States at one point to give another shot at the NBA. Was the NBA ever out of your mind, or was that always the main goal when you were playing overseas? I got to get back to the league. Well, you know, it, it was to a point because when I got to Spain and Italy, had I been able to, uh, you know, 
stay and secure those opportunities, I would have stayed in Spain. Spain is my favorite country by far. Uh, so I would have tried to spend a career there. And I had some opportunities, possible opportunities that just that uh, didn't come to fruition um, because the Japanese offer came up and it was guaranteed money, and I just I took it and ran. So, um, you know, I, I definitely would have preferred to have have an extended career in Spain or Italy, something like that. But my MBA ended up being in Japan where I spent my last four years. And once I got over there, I wasn't really, you know, I was always a fan of the NBA and, you know, would have loved to have played more there. But, you know, I got, I scratched the itch. I, I was an NBA player. Um, and, you know, Japan was really, really good to me, not only from a confidence standpoint, but we won every championship. I, I was compensated well. And it gave me a, a, a boost to transition into uh, my broadcasting career. Yeah, was it nice to kind of settle down over there for a few years? It says you played for four seasons there. Was it nice to settle down, especially after kind of playing on the fringes and the short-term contracts, and, and finally you got that guaranteed money and stability? Oh, yeah. It, it was great because, um, you know, I didn't like Japan when I first got there uh, because I stuck I stick out like a sore thumb. And... Um, you know, but as I, I was there for a while, I really started to embrace the culture, and the people were fantastic in the Toshiba organization. And Japan is different from a lot of places overseas when you go play. The Japanese professional league, they're supported by major corporations. So, um, you know, like corporations would support teams in Europe, but actual Toshiba, uh, Sumitomo, uh, Mitsubishi, Toyota, um, these big, big, huge corporations uh, supported these teams. And so the guys on my team at Toshiba, they had to go to work half the day and then come and practice with us in the afternoon and evening. So they were regular, they call them businessmen or um, salarymen. That's what they call them in Japan. So they were regular salarymen that just happened to play basketball where we were, you know, hired missionaries, so to speak, to come and you know, we were hired to play basketball and, and strictly that. So those guys had, um, you know, they were really, um, how can I say, they, they were really great gentlemen. And they understood family life, and they were very focused on their careers. And once we hit the basketball court, they were very willing to listen. They were willing to be pushed. And, you know, Alex, before I got to Toshiba, they had been in existence 30 years in the Japanese professional basketball league. Uh, in 30 years, they never made a playoffs. And the, the four years I was there, they not only made the playoffs, but we won all three uh, three different championships that take place throughout the year. So I had a, a wonderful relationship with those guys. One of my uh, teammates, they called him the Japanese Jordan Kita. He's now the head coach of Toshiba. So I thank God for social media because I can see updates and things like that and kind of follow Toshiba. But it was a uh, fantastic experience and I, I i really i really enjoyed my teammates everywhere i went maybe except for spain i mean no wonder you guys won four straight titles you had yourself and you had japanese jordan how could you guys lose well i mean the funny thing is it, you know and I, I say this when i speak to young people all the time and i talk about my experience in japan isuzu was the league powerhouse and they had a guy by the name of michael takahashi now his mom was japanese but his dad was black and he grew up in california 
and he played as a Japanese national. So he, there was a big, that was a huge advantage because Michael was a six-four athlete extraordinaire. I mean, could run and jump all day long. And so he was an X factor and, and really played into that team being a, a powerhouse. And a lot of times overseas before, uh, is it the Bozeman rule where now you can have as many foreigners as you want on a team? Before that, though, when you can only have two foreigners, if you had a third guy that was playing as a Japanese player and you had two foreigners, you really had an advantage. Sure, yeah, you kind of uh, kind of cheat the system a little bit and get that get that third guy. Um, exactly. So, how did that style of play in, in Japan compare to the basketball in Europe or in other places you played around the world, or even in, compared to the United States? You know, the Japanese league wasn't quite as physical as the European league. Um, and believe it or not, the Japanese uh, they know basketball and they they enjoy the sport. It's not their most popular, but they do enjoy it, and they have some schools that are really uh, trying to produce talent that can come over to the United States. So there's, um, oh, what's the kid's name? There's Watanabe at George Washington University. He's a pretty good player. There's a guard in um, uh, UC uh, Cal Luis something. There's probably three or four, uh, because I, I paid special attention to it, there's probably three or four guys from Japan that have uh, had pretty good success in U.S. college basketball. So the, the, the game is starting to evolve a lot quicker over there, but it's, I think the Japanese level is more like college. Uh, it, it doesn't compare in terms of physicality. Uh, the size uh, is, is a little bit smaller uh, in Japan than it is in Europe and the United States. And so I would say it's, it's more like high-level college as opposed to professional basketball. But it was, it was great for me because I was in a great situation, and um, you know I love my time there. All right, so if you had to pick one place to play for one more season in any of the leagues that you played on throughout your career, where would that be? Oh, it'd be Barcelona, Spain, man. I mean, I didn't really like my teammates, but Barcelona and the country of Spain, um, again, you know, I'm, I'm a, a huge historian, and the Moors had a, a huge influence in Spain, and, and you can look at their, their temples and the places of worship and how they do their their food and how they you know enjoy themselves and take the siesta i mean i, I love spain so i would go back to uh juventus Badalona, the team i played for i'd go back there in a heartbeat right now yeah you can get over some crappy teammates if you got uh the barcelona beaches and all that to look forward to uh, yes and the barcelona architecture if you know what i'm talking about <laughs> absolutely uh <laughs> So I do want to get into, uh, just for a short time, talk a little bit of Illinois basketball. Of course, being on the fly, Flying Illini, you had some teammates that had some success in the pros. Did you keep up with those guys while you were bouncing around? Uh, some guys like Kendall Gill, Nick Anderson, who had success in the NBA. Did you keep up with them during that time? I did, and uh, I was able to actually, um, I came and, no, that, that, oh, you know what? I saw. I came to see Nick play. Nick left early, and he was a, his rookie season. He came up to the Bulls, and he invited me up. So it was me and my girlfriend. We came up and watched the game. He put us up in the hotel. You know, treated us really well. So I stayed in touch with Nick, but Kendall was the one I stayed in touch with the most throughout his, you know, Charlotte, New Jersey, Lakers, Minnesota Bulls. Throughout his 15-year career, I, I, I probably kept in touch with him more than anybody else, and. 
you know, so I, I didn't as much with King Battle and Lowell as I would prefer, but we definitely circled back once we kind of got settled in, in post-basketball careers. So that's Kendall and Nick were probably the two that I, I stayed in most touch with. Yeah, you mentioned to me last time we were together that you never really got along with Lou Henson while you were a player. I wasn't aware of that, but you said you did come around and you guys have a good relationship now. Did he keep up with you at all during your professional career or give you any wisdom or help? No, that's not really uh, That's not really Lou's way. Lou is more, um, you know, if he's dialed into his player, you know, he, he's dialed in. But he's not it's kind of weird. You, you, you have to wait. I understand it now. You kind of have to wait a little while after playing for Lou Henson. He's not, he's not the chubby, the chummy, you know, rah, rah, you know, he, he's, he's a, he's a, how can I describe coach, man? I'm having a hard time putting the words. He, he is a loyalist. I mean, he, if he's got your back, he's got your back, but he's all about business. And once you get a little bit older and a little bit more removed, I'd say like five to six years removed from playing for him, then he becomes he he becomes very helpful, very loving, very open. But it, he he's you know he's got the fourth most games coached in college basketball history, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so he he's got a system that works for him. And you know once you get past that threshold of being the next player after six or seven years, I mean he was. You kind of look around and you're looking like, is this is this Lou? Is this Coach Henson? You know, but that's as you start to see him more and more, and some of the things he would tell us, and then you know, as we had kids and families, the things that he would tell us made a lot more sense. They didn't make a lot of sense back then when we were playing for him, and so uh, now, I mean, Lou and I are great and been great for years. Uh, he was even, I know he was a little bit upset with that book that I released, but you know, that's shit. I was upset with him too, so. <laughs> When I was playing for him, so it's tip to tack. Yeah. So, um, did any Illinois connections help you facilitate any of those relationships with teams overseas, or was that all kind of done by your agent? No, that was all done by my agent. Um, you know, had I had I really been thinking, I would have reached out to Tal Brody uh, because Israel, he's basically right? the uh, yeah the ambassador of sport in, in the country of Israel, and I had a. I had an opportunity to play in Israel, but my wife at the time, uh, you know, was all all in the hype of the media. And she's like, I will get in front of that plane. I will stand in front of that plane. You're not going to Israel. And I, I turned down a six-figure um, offer in Israel, uh, and I was a little bit upset with that. But, you know, that's that's what happens sometimes when you're in a relationship. You have to, you know, you have to defer uh, to the missus when, you know, she puts her foot down. So I... I would have probably uh, benefited from that greatly, as did Deion Thomas and some of the other uh, Brian, Brian Randall, Randall some yeah. of the former Illini, yeah, that had uh, gone to Israel, and, and Tal is just really taking care of them. So, yeah, I probably would have benefited from that, but I, I didn't really have any Illini connections anywhere else. All right, Stephen, I'm almost done with you, but uh, I did want to get your thoughts on an opinion that I had when I watched the NBA today. Because some players I see in the NBA, and I'm just like, man, that guy is in a perfect situation, and it's just on the right team at the right time for his skills to flourish. For example, Matthew Delvadova is one guy on the Bucks right now who sticks out to me. Like, I, I just think he was on uh, the right team at the right time with the Cavaliers coming out of St. Mary's, and he's a guy that might have washed out of the league, and you just never really hear from him again. 
but he filled that role at the right time and then turned that into a second contract, a big one at that with the Milwaukee Bucks. So on the opposite side of that, opposite side of that I feel like there are probably people who could potentially carve out a role in the league who just maybe slip through the cracks. So essentially my question is, is that an accurate assessment? Are there a high number of guys out there who you think could have thrived in the league and it just didn't work out for one reason or another? Or do you think that over the years people who were going to stick pretty much stick in the league no matter what? You know, that's a great question, Alex, and I, I guess I would answer it like this. Um, there's so many different factors in terms of sticking and having success at the NBA level. It's, it's really precarious, and there are politics that are involved. There's money uh, that's even more involved in terms of if guys have guaranteed contracts or if you're a free agent. Um, you know, and then you, you have to have somebody that believes in you. Doug Collins, when he was the head coach at Detroit Pistons, he believed in me. Uh, and got me in. Now, I, maybe I didn't do enough while I was there. Um, I had a couple of uh, shots that kind of sealed games for us at, during that time. Um, but, you know, uh, it was his decision to go another way. And so I, I think that guys like myself during that era, had I had a person that really, really believed in me, yeah, I could have uh, carved out maybe a five- or six-year career because um, guys that – were all around me, Dave Jamerson uh, from Ohio University, uh, Chris Gent from Ohio State. They were able to do that because they had they had a, one specific skill set. They could really flat-out shoot the basketball, which is premium, and they had somebody believe in them. And so, you know, the, the Matthew Del Vadovas, uh, you know, he's a, I know him personally because I covered him when I was at the ESPN. He's a smart kid. He's a tough kid. He knows how to play. And in this day and age, when, when people are focusing so much on analytics, three-point shooting athleticism, but guys that really know how to play and that are tough, they kind of stick out. And so, you know, I do think that there's a lot of guys in the NBA right now who, you know, in a different era, maybe they wouldn't be there. If they didn't have that advocate on their side, they wouldn't be in the league. But, you know, that's, that's probably, we could probably say that in almost any, any other career field where, you know, there's premium opportunities and, you know, there's a lot that goes into that decision-making process. Yeah, you kind of touched on it there a little bit. It kind of leads into my last question for you. Looking back and knowing what you know now about the game, having played about a decade in the pros, do you think you got a fair shake at it, and do you have any regrets? Do you think there were some guys in the NBA that you could have outplayed and, and you maybe could have hung on longer than you did, or or is it all uh, all good with you, no regrets? Oh, well, it's, it's, it's all good with me now. It's no regrets. There were regrets at the time because, you know, maybe I could have, uh, you know, worked a little bit harder. Maybe I could have kept my mouth shut because I led the CBA in technicals one year. Uh, <laughs> maybe I could have, um, you know, um, when there were some opportunities with certain teams, there were, there were years, Alex, when two to three teams would want me to come to a veterans camp and you just try to sit there with your agent and try to assess which opportunity was the best. And so, you know, Things could have changed, but I, I have no regrets. I, I'm really, um, you know, I had to go to therapy after all the, the cutting and the waving and the releasing and the moving and all that. But, you know, that wasn't positive. But in the long run, it, it really helped shape me to become the man that I am and to be able to know that I can overcome adversity. So there are no regrets whatsoever. And I think my story really has helped a lot of young people understand that, uh, yeah, you could be successful, but you're probably not going to have a straight line to that success. Sure. All right, Stephen. Well, I probably could talk to you for 
six more hours on this topic. I think all this is just fascinating, and I love hearing the stories that come out of those experiences overseas. But I'm going to let you go because I know you're a busy guy. Uh, thanks so much for joining me today. That was some really good stuff. No, I appreciate it, Alex. Take time, man. For sure. Take care. Thanks again to Stephen for joining me and for giving us a slice of what overseas basketball was like in the 1990s. Man, some of those stories were pretty priceless. And also, of course, thanks to Wes White, as always, for producing this episode. Thanks again to everyone out there who listened and who continues to follow this show. And if you're new to the show, subscribe, rate, comment, all that good stuff on iTunes, Podbean, Google Play, and SoundCloud. And we'll talk to you next time here on the BTN Podcast. Podcast.